0: The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Well, what we are doing this month, as a reminder, in light of the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, we're teaching on a handful of core Christian doctrines. Uh, on which the Christian faith has been established and reaffirmed during this period of time in the 16th century called the Protestant Reformation. And in doing this we've been asking a handful of questions. Last couple of weeks we asked the question how does a person find God's approval? Last week we said we asked the question how do we overcome sin in our life? And today we ask the question who am I? So you're going to figure out who you are today. I'm a husband I am a son, I'm a father, I am a brother, I'm a pastor, I'm an American. I'm sure that you have a list similar to mine in many of those ways. I'm sure that you could even add some things to that list. If I get frustrated with my wife, I don't stop being her husband, I just may be a poor one. If I neglect my children, my status as a father doesn't change even though I am not a great one in that moment. If I break the laws, I don't lose my status as a citizen, even though I may be a very irresponsible one. And I mention these relationships because it helps us understand this question, who am I? When it comes to our identity in Christ, who we are in Christ. In the pre-Reformation time, at the time of the Reformation, during and prior, people considered that their relationship with Jesus, that their identity with Him was one of a fluid relationship, it changed from time to time. They strongly desired union with Christ, they desired relationship with Him, and some days they would be more or less united to Christ depending on how they were doing that day. There were things that they could do to even become more closer to Jesus and more united to him through an order of procedures like prayer and fasting and sorrow over sin and participating in the sacraments and living a life of obedience and growing in righteousness allowed them to be closer to Jesus and more united to him. And so their relationship with him fluctuated depending on their holiness and so was their union with Jesus. Well during the time the reformers Uh, This is not how they understood their relationship with Jesus. And for them, convinced and convicted by Scripture, there was a very important difference that we need to understand between union and communion. For them, they were convinced that communion was different than union, that their relationship with God was fixed and it was unchanged by faith of the merits of Jesus, and yet their communion with God changed all the time. When you're feeling distant from God, in your relationship with him, when you're lacking enjoyment in your relationship as a Christian, what's going on there? Have you in fact become distant from the love of God? Do you feel far from the communion of God? And does that mean that somehow your relationship with him is different? What, if anything, has been lost? What's changed? And how do you, if something has changed, how do you regain that relationship with him that you feel is a sense of just, it's, you're in a rut? Where are you now? How close do you feel to God right now? I bet the way that you would answer that question is highly dependent on your ability to resist sin in your life right now. If you say, you know, I don't feel very close to God, why? Well, because I just had a really rough week. I found myself very short with those who I love. I found myself just boiling over with a temper and anger. I found that my attitudes were just so, they were so repulsive, they were so disobedient, they were so evil. I found myself cheating and lying and even hurting others. And so, no, I don't feel very close to God at all. Sometimes our hearts are full of hallelujahs. Sometimes our hearts are full of praises to God. And sometimes our hearts are just overwhelmed with questions like, where are you, God, and why me? Think of a marriage relationship. When a man and a woman take their marriage vows to one another and consummate the marriage, they are united. As the Bible has said, the two become one in a union that is most holy and good and profitable and sanctifying. And there will be, spoiler alert, no doubt there will be times within the marriage where the communion is not as great as the union. I've heard. Where sin... Sin in that relationship creates a barrier to joy, creates a loss of communion, creates enmity and distance. Have you two ceased to be one? Absolutely not. The two remain one. In this spiritual union, in this spiritual covenant with one another, there is a union that remains unshaken even though the communion is hurting. In fact, there's no greater illustration in all of Scripture to define Christ's relationship to his church than a husband's relationship to his wife. And in a culture where marriage relationship becomes increasingly confusing, no doubt our understanding of our union with Christ is also confusing and when our union with Christ is confusing, no doubt there will be misunderstanding and confusion within our own marriages for how we are to function and what our role is, ought to be and what we are to do in marriage and why marriage exists. You see, if we understand our union with Christ, we'll understand the beauty of the union of the husband and wife. Where there's misunderstanding, there's confusion. A union of a man and a woman in marriage in becoming one is not a hallmark notion. It is not an invention of man. It is not just a romantic gesture. It doesn't mean that we're just sharing a lot of things together. It is a spiritual reality. And yet, our earthly union in marriage, how beautiful it is and profoundly mysterious it is, it is defined by an even greater union and a union with Jesus. For in marriage, two imperfect sinners join together and share what they have and in our union with Christ you have a sinner receiving the perfect righteousness of the sinless God and the sinless righteous God receiving the full sin of that person it is not fair it is not a fair trade in marriage whatever you bring to the marriage relationship is fair Because it's two people, two sinful people coming together, opening their luggage and saying, what do you got? What did you you bring? All right." And no one can point fingers because we all got the mess. But in the union with Christ, it is the perfect God taking our imperfect sin and complete sin, and our imperfect sinners taking the full righteousness of Jesus. It's not fair. That's why they call it good news. And our union with Christ is the central core to the gospel. Everything flows from this identity that we have with him. Who we are in Christ makes the world a difference. What is this word that Jesus gives to us? Well, first, let's, let's look at this passage. Our union with Jesus, it's a foundation of joyful communion with him. As he uses this metaphor in this passage, it is not the other way around. We have union with Christ and are declared righteous and just as innocent people before God based on faith, completely by his grace, and it is from that union with him that all communion exists. It's not the other way around. It isn't that we, that we have a good relationship with Jesus, that we pursue him in righteousness, that we get close to him, and from that closeness, we then have our identity in him. A husband and a wife are one in the Lord, not because they had a great day, but because they have become united together. A Christian is united to Christ by faith, not because they're having a great day. The Christian is one with God, not because they're having a great day, but because they are in Christ. Our joys flow from our union, not communion. Our peace flows from our union, not communion, our strength to resist sin and to grow in righteousness flows from our union with Jesus, not our communion with him. Our confidence in the promise of God to endure to the end flows from our union with Christ, not our communion with him. Another image is the image of the vine and the branches. From our passage in John 15, Jesus puts, us, puts before us a, a metaphor a picture that describes this in dramatic fashion, the difference between being in Christ and outside of Christ. Look again at verse 1 and 2. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes that it may bear more fruit. If you abide in Christ, then you can do all things, Even our most courageous prayers are answered because we're in Christ. And if you are cut off from Christ, you can do nothing. And to use the metaphor of the passage, you're like a dead branch that's useful only for firewood. And so being in Christ and being outside of Christ is the difference between being dead and being alive. The metaphor is so dramatic, it's offensive even. that There really are two ways to live. There's two identities. There's two people. There are those who are cut off from Christ and those who are in Christ. If we're in Christ, we have everything that God has promised to us. If we are outside of Christ, we are cut off from all of it. Every single bit. It's so radical because it clearly says that all the benefits of Christ's perfect life and his perfect death and resurrection remain useless if the the person remains outside of Jesus. All of God's blessings are found in Christ. There's no gospel without union with Jesus. And so if we're in Christ, we have everything that he has. We have it all. And so we answer the question this morning, who am I? Who am I? Do you want to know who you are in Christ? Do you want to know how we are declared and what we are given and what our true identity is when we are in Christ? This passage will show us who we are. If we're in Christ, here is who we are. First, you are adopted. We'll see this idea of adoption in a moment, but look first at verse 3. Again, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Already you are clean. Because of the word I have spoken to you. You are clean. Now, let's let's not look at this passage and this idea with our American 21st century eyes. Because you may be thinking, i got soap in every room of my house. (laughs) Why do I need Jesus? Okay, he makes me clean. I get it. long time ago, they didn't bathe often. Their feet were dirty. And so someone cleaning you was actually a great gesture of love and care. He's not talking about that. He is telling his disciples that what he can give them is an unhindered, uninterrupted, unending access to the communion with God the Father. Cleanness in the time of Jesus was an issue of relationship with God. It wasn't an issue of hygiene. It was an issue of relationship with God. And if there was anything impure about you, you better keep your distance from a holy God. If there was anything impure, in your heart or life and in your attitudes that were, that were not clean in the eyes of God, that were not pure according to his character, you better keep your distance from him. And so the people of God had to go through these extensive purity rituals to remove any uncleanness, in order to have any sort of communion with God. God, in His mercy, created a system of purification that His people could go through so that He could have communion with them. And so when Jesus says, you're clean because of me, He's changing the game. He is saying something so radical. According to this, Jesus declares them righteous and clean before they actually do anything righteous and clean on their own. This declaration is not in response to, to growth in their life or anything that they've done on their own part. It was an act of God. Jesus says, you're clean because of what I've done for you. Your relationship with God, you have access to him that is unending, that is unhindered because of what I have done to you, because of the word that I have spoken to you. He treats them as clean even though they are even though their souls are polluted. When a person trusts in Christ at that very moment, he or she is clothed in his perfect holiness. So even though that believer is still sinful, he or she is judged by God as blameless. What is this word, Jesus says, the word that I've spoken to you, what is the word that Jesus has spoken to them? Well, it's, it's the good news of his mission on earth to bring redemption through his perfect life and perfect sacrificial death and victorious resurrection over sin as payment for the guilt of our sin. But look here, just a few verses before, which we didn't read in chapter 14, verse 18 and 20. I'll read it. Or if you have your Bibles, look at verse 18 and chapter 14. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. And in that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you, are in me, and, and you in me, and I in you. In declaring them clean, Jesus is telling them, and he's telling us as we hear and receive this scripture, that as soon as you and I become united into Christ through faith in his good work of redemption on the cross, we are made children of God not orphans, children of God that will be with him forever. This is bigger than you think. Let me show you how big this is. If God is always pleased with Jesus and his perfect faithful son, and you are united with Jesus through faith, then you are the recipient of God's unending affection and pleasure forever. If God is always pleased with his perfect faithful son and you are in Christ, then God is always pleased with you. I know you don't believe it, (laughs) so we're going to keep talking. I want to flesh this out. There are some of you that feel that because of your sin and the bad choices you have made, you deserve hell. You deserve hell. If you are in Christ, through faith in His work on the cross for you, then please hear this. No, you don't. Not anymore. Your debt has been paid. You know, if you have a debt that you owe this student loan, and it's $10,000... And it's past due and the lender keeps calling you every evening at dinner and every Saturday morning at 645 and you keep sending it to voicemail and your rich uncle comes along and filled with a heart of compassion, sees your need and pays every single penny of your student loan debt. But that lender keeps calling and you answer the phone and you say, and they say, you owe us the $10,000, and you say, no, I don't. My rich uncle, he paid every single last penny. Stop calling me. It would be unthinkable that when the lender calls and, and says the debt hasn't been paid, you still owe me, and you respond with, I know, I'm such a loser. I know you're right. I know it's paid, but you make a good point. I I, I have that, you know what, I, I did occur all of that debt at one point. What can I do to make you like me? What can I do? That's what we do with God. Our debt has been paid. Jesus Christ paid our debt on the cross, and we trust in him. We rest in him, and all of that work is applied to us by faith. Faith is the instrument of God's of God's transferring Jesus' perfect righteousness and declaring us righteous and innocent in his eyes is by trusting in Jesus and what he has done. Why do we do this? Why are we like that person on the other line? That when, that, when we are convicted of sin and, we, and someone says, that tempter says, the, the enemy says to us, you know, you really are a bad person. You really do sin. I mean, I know that you trust in Jesus and you believe he died on the cross for your sins, but you had a pretty bad week. And we say, I know you're right. I must, be, I must be out of favor with God. Here's a couple reasons why I think we do this. First reason, deep down inside, we are convinced that there is a way for us to save ourselves. Deep down inside, maybe we need a little help. We all admit that we need help. We need someone to come alongside us. Maybe we need Jesus to show us the way. But deep down inside, we believe that if we have the right tools that if we have the right doctrine and theology, if we have the right energy and the right determination and stick to itness, each and every one of us should be able to save ourselves. Deep down inside, you and I believe that, that the grace of God is good, but we should be able to do it on our own. And so we keep trying and we keep trying. Here's another reason why we do it. Deep down inside, we cannot believe that someone would actually love us that much. This might even be the bigger one, as to give all that Jesus has earned, all of his perfect life, to give us all his personal hard-earned reward, and us doing nothing to deserve it, and Jesus giving it all to us. We just can't believe it. We're born with this conscience that tells us that we are condemned for doing bad. It's reinforced in every context, at school, at work, in our home, in society, in the form of civil laws and expectations by our parents and stresses put on us by our bosses. We are told that the answer to all of our screwing up is, do better next time. And so this this theology, that's not theology, it's this liturgy of our culture that tells us the way that we solve our problems is to do better next time, and it's lodged deep in our hearts. And so when the gospel tells us we're truly loved, that God is the Father that will never leave us, that He's the friend that will never betray us, that He's the boss that will never ridicule us, that He's the spouse that will never reject us, He is the companion that will never give us the cold shoulder or the silent treatment. It comes to us as foolishness. We say, that is foolish. Because we don't have a category for that kind of love. And our first response is to be like Sarah at the age of 90 when God said, I'm gonna give you a child, and she laughs and says, that's a good one. Not only are you the creator of the universe, you're also a comedian, good job. (laughs) We don't believe it, but it's true. It's so very true. Jesus did not come to show us the way. He came to be the way. The way to salvation. The way to God. He came to adopt us into his family, not to hire us as employees, but to make us his family. If this is really what it means to be a Christian, then your union with Christ is your is the core identity for how you live in every area of your life. Who you are in Christ and united to Him by faith as a recipient of the full affection of the Father has to change everything you do. And this is exactly why uh, those who opposed the message of the Reformers hated this. They hated it because they knew that this kind of teaching would change the way people lived. And they said, how else, if they really believe this, how are they going to feel anxious about how they live anymore? How are they going to be afraid to do spiritual work? They were afraid that this message of union with Christ by faith was too comfortable, that it was too too transformative. What motivations do we have left to honor God if our standing with God doesn't change because of our character? And those who oppose this message were, were troubled. Not only are we adopted, but we're also being transformed. That's the second thing that we are in light of this work that God does in us. You are. Who are you? You're being transformed. Here is something I wish every Christian uh, understood about being a Christian. Becoming a Christian doesn't suddenly get rid of all of your problems. Becoming a Christian actually brings into your life a lot more problems that you didn't have before. I wish more people knew this. This isn't a mistake. God has not forgotten you. He actually tells us this is exactly what will happen. The life of a Christian then is increasingly living out the reality of all that we have from the Father because of Jesus in every area of our life, and it will be very, very hard. Not just knowing the truth, not just but practicing it, trusting in and living in light of what we have from God because of Jesus. Let's use the, the marriage analogy again. I've officiated many weddings it's one of my favorite privileges as a pastor but every wedding that i do as soon as i get done reading the vows of the cup of the that the couple repeat to one another i think to myself silently most times silently i think to myself with a smile on my face, face these people have no idea what they're getting into they know just as much as i knew 13 years ago when i said these vows not knowing anything that was ahead. Amen? Amen. <clears throat> Absolutely nothing. And I'm thinking what you just said is about to change your life forever. You don't even know it. <clears throat> You're thinking, now we don't have to go home at the end of the day. You're going to wish you could. No. <clears throat> every, every marriage is different, but all morning to all the engaged couples here Uh, every marriage is different but every marriage every marriage is different with different stresses but everyone is designed for one purpose and that is to change you it is to make you more holy it is to make you more like Jesus to make you more holy to transform you in the image of Jesus and this will glorify God Jesus tells us in this passage you'll bear fruit and it will glorify God It is our very real and very present union with Jesus that builds us up and strengthens us every day. Here, in this metaphor, let us give careful attention to how Jesus describes our relationship. He does not say, together, let us give this our best shot, because the two of us together are better than us separate. So let's put our heads together, and I hope this works out. Jesus says, if you abide in me, you will bear fruit. This is why in the marriage service, we don't say, I hope so, but we say, I do. Can you imagine? I have never heard, and I hope so, at a wedding. Do you take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife, and do you promise to love and cherish her as long as you both shall live? I'm going to give it my best shot. you would think this union means nothing. This isn't union. This is a lust relationship. It is a a relationship based on a consumer sharing of goods and services. You're going to try to get things from one another. As long as it blesses you, and as soon as it stops blessing you, then maybe it wasn't meant to be. But in a union with Christ through faith, John Calvin replied to his critics with, Christ never is where His Spirit is not. What does that mean? Wherever there is true faith, there is the Spirit of God transforming us more and more into the image of Christ. By faith, we are united to Christ, and that will always lead to holiness. It will always lead to God's transforming grace from one degree to the next. If we are united to Christ, then we are united to Him at all points of His activity on our behalf, We are united to him and recipient of all that he has done. We we share in his death as sin is defeated in our life. He was crucified and in Christ our sin is crucified because we are united to him. We share in his resurrection that gives us new life through his spirit. Because Jesus is alive today, we live and that's what Jesus says. I will be in you and you will be in me and, and you will live because I live. You see, that's why if Jesus is dead and the resurrection never happened, Paul says, this is a supreme waste of time. We share in his ascension. We've been raised with him. We share in his heavenly existence. We we sit with him in heavenly places so that our life is hidden in him, so much so that no matter what happens to us in our bodies, we are secure in his love we will share in his promised return. When Christ, who is our life, appears, we will also appear with him in glory. Our ongoing transformation is rooted not in our daily ability to be better, but in what God has done for us in Christ. It is seeing ourselves united in him and living through that that enables the individual Christian to grow in true holiness every day. You are being transformed. In Christ because of his work in you through the Holy Spirit because of your unity with him not because of your character or your strength and finally who are you you are loved how do I know how can you know I mean this is a great thing to say isn't it Jesus loves you great so is my mom What does that mean? That's really, how do I know that God loves me? I'm going to show you without a doubt how you can know today, once and for all, that you are loved by God. Are you ready? can't remember what I was going to say. (laughs) Hope something good happens. Verse nine, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Here is a simple formula that Jesus gives us. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. You should be asking, how much does God love you, Jesus? Jesus spent his entire earthly ministry telling people how much his father was pleased with him. Was he, why? Was he just like a bratty child? My father loves me so much. No, that's not what he was doing because he was about to tell everyone that if they put their faith in Him, then they would too be as secure in the Father's love as He was. This is better than you think. God loves you to the degree that He loves Jesus if you're in Christ. End of story. And we know that He loves Jesus. We know that the heavens opened and God said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him, follow him. We see him raising him from the dead. We see, we see Jesus saying, my God loves me. Everything that I do pleases my father. Everything I say, I say because he told me to say it and I please him, I've done him everything that he has asked me to do. I am the true son of God. I am, I am the righteous son. I am the perfect son. I please my father in everything. And he loves me so much. And if you trust in me, he will love you not a single ounce less. I know you don't believe it. You want to know how much God loves you. You only need to look as far as he loves Jesus. You don't need to look at how far you have come in your life. And if you're in Christ, you're loved that much. The moment that you believed by true saving faith in the work of Jesus for you, you are at once and forever in Christ and everything absolutely that Jesus has done and is doing and will doing is yours. God's measure of love, we assume, must be somehow about how well we're doing. God's measure of love and our fluctuation within that love must be based on our life. So we worry a lot. We wonder, have I prayed enough? Have I sinned too much? Can God still love me after that? And when we ask those questions, we're putting ourselves at the center of the universe. We're putting our lives on the throne. We place ourselves at the center of all that there is. But the Reformers took us out of the center of the equation, put Jesus in the center of the equation, and says, instead of asking how well you're doing, ask yourself, how well is Jesus doing? That's how much God loves you. How righteous is he? How good is he? And then we smile. Because we say, well, he's, he's very righteous. He is righteous. In him there is no darkness. He is the perfect, obedient, of, of, of obedient son of God. There's a story of a man who fell off a cliff, but on his way down he managed to grab a branch, and that branch broke his fall, and it saved his life, but before long, he realized that he could not pull himself up from that pit, back onto the ledge, and finally he called out, is there anyone else up there who can help me? And to his surprise, a voice boomed back and said, I am here, I can help you, but first, you're going to have to let go of that branch. Thinking for a moment about his options, the man looked back up and shouted back, Is there anyone else up there who can help me out? (laughs) We need and want salvation. We're looking for salvation, but we still want to save ourselves. We don't know how to rest in God's grace. It's foreign to us. It's not embedded in us. We talked a couple weeks ago that it's an, an external thing. It's an alien righteousness. It comes from outside. Our greatest work that you and I will ever have to do is the work of resting in God's grace. Do you see how wonderful this is? God loves us with the unbounded love he has for his son. Christ is our bridegroom, and we are his bride. And even though we, his bride, who longs for his return, are at times faithless and anxious, we, he will not desert us. Even though we are his imperfect bride, we will be presented to him as a spotless bride without blemish one day. And this will not be because of our character, but because of his promise. And so let us close a little different. This morning, in light of our resting in the union of Jesus, the Reformers had a way of putting together several questions and answers as a way of remembering this wonderful news of our union with Christ and what it meant. And likely the best known was the Heidelberg Catechism, which puts our union with Jesus front and center. This is how I want to end us, by asking this question and resting in the truth of our union with Christ that is the fountain of all of God's blessing to us. I'll ask the question and you respond. Church, what is your only comfort in life and in death? That I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to faithful Savior Jesus Christ, who with His precious blood is fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of the Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Yes, that all things must work together for my salvation. Wherefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. Let's pray.